This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's big question, why should we believe the Bible if we can't agree on what it means? We're asking this question today to Andy Judd. Andy works as a lecturer at Ridley College in Melbourne. He's worked as a church pastor, played in a band, and has recently completed a PhD on biblical interpretation. And he joins me now. Andy, welcome to Bigger Questions. Thank you. Good to be here. I really appreciate you asking me. Yeah, that's great. So, Andy, you've just finished a PhD on biblical interpretation. What made you interested in that? Well, I um, spent a lot of time reading the Bible in my day job as a minister, and I've observed that people often disagree about what it means. Yes, yes. So one of the questions I wanted to look at is why do we disagree? Yes. So are our disagreements, uh, I guess, are there principles to them or do people just make the Bible mean whatever they want it to mean? And this is very important for me because I don't just read the Bible as a thing of interest uh, or for its literary qualities, though I do appreciate its, uh, it has literature. Uh, but I read the Bible because I believe it's God's word, so it's actually authoritative. Mm. And one of the, the big questions for me is how can it be authoritative if we can't agree what it means? Well, that's exactly our big question for today. So you're the well, ideal well. person, perhaps, to help us to explore it. So thank you, Andy, for coming. But to kick off bigger questions, we do like to ask a couple of smaller questions just to get us thinking. I'm terrible at these. I remember <laughs> this from last time. Okay, well, today we're asking Andy Judd about biblical interpretation. So Andy, I thought we'd test you on how much you know about an issue that has caused much disagreement about what the Bible actually says. Now, for our smaller questions today, I'm going to give you three quotes about an issue of biblical interpretation over which there has been much disagreement. A key word of the quote has been blanked out and you just have to tell me what the blanked word is. Well, maybe that's perhaps how some see the Bible, that, you know, just fill in the blanks, make it say what you want to say. I'm nervous already. You're nervous. <laughs> okay, well, here we go. Quote number one, blank was established by a decree of Almighty God. It is sanctioned in the Bible in both Testaments from Genesis to Revelation. It has existed in all ages has been found among the people of the highest civilization and in the nations of the highest proficiency in the arts. So what is the blank? Uh, coffee or <laughs> slavery. But okay. Possibly coffee. Possibly coffee. Which, which one do you think you're going to go uh, with? Uh, look, I'm going to lock in, uh, I'm going to lock in slavery. Slavery, yes. And that is actually correct. Yes, well, it is. Yes, right. it is slavery. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> that quote was from Jefferson Davies, who was President of the States of America, in the 1860s. So you're away well here today, Andy. Okay, quote number two. God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of blank and the reformation of manners. So what is the blank? I'm going to lock in uh, vice. Vice? Okay, well, do you mean any more specific vices perhaps? Or <laughs> just one of the vices. Just one of the vices. Okay, well, it's not quite correct, unfortunately, Andy. It was actually the slave trade sure. was what the blank was. I thought the it was sub- one word. That's what... Um, oh, okay, well, yeah. sorry. Sorry for the... The miscommunication, perhaps, but Look, it was a one thing you can you can rely on a, a Bible college lecture to be a pedant when it comes to yes, details. okay. Well, so and I'm unfortunately, gonna... your pedants has lost has cost you a point here. Sure, um, right. That's fair. And that quote was from the great abolitionist William Wilberforce, who was active from the late eighteenth century. Okay, so it all rests on this quote number three. Okay, the right of holding slaves is clearly established in blank, both by precept and example. Are we talking one word or...? Well, or, or? They're, technically it's three words, um, but I would accept one word as an answer as well. Yeah, it's three words is the actual blank. Established in the 
Old Testament. <laughs> Close. Maybe a bit more broad. Perhaps. The Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures, yes. it is. Yes, that's right. Yes, it is. The blank was the Holy Scriptures. Uh, this was said by Richard Furman, the president of the South Carolina Baptist Convention in 1838. So, Andy, well, there's a little interpretation needed for your performance. For you, actually, passed. You got two, you. two of our three, three yep. smaller questions right. Thanks. And <laughs> if we had a live audience here today, they'd give you an enormous applause. Now, but this smaller questions here, Andy, reveal a problem, don't they? Because smart people have held distinct and, in fact, quite opposite views on what the Bible is saying on a pretty substantial issue. Some say that the Bible advocates for slavery, and others say that the Bible is a freedom manifesto, so to speak. So whilst today's big question isn't necessarily to try to resolve the slavery question, it does highlight the big question of how can the Bible be authoritative or from God if there's disagreement about what God actually says? So does this then undermine the usefulness of the Bible? I'm going to look in no. <laughs> okay, right. Yeah, yeah. Um, unpack that. Why, 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 is it, why, is the, why is that? If there's such a disagreement, why is the Bible still um, yeah, look, authoritative? Th- thanks for, the I guess, setting up the issue so well because we, we do have to, I guess, confront the fact that, that this text is open or has been open to divergent kind of interpretations on that. As you, as you point out, people in the North and the South of America in pre-Civil War discussions about the slave trade, in answer to the question, what does God think about slavery? Uh, they looked back to their common tradition, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament of the Bible. Um, now, I'm, I'm sort of a bit of an optimist when it comes to these things. Is I, I think actually when we, um, when we come to the scriptures with I guess, being prepared for a new experience, being prepared to have our prejudices overturned. I think actually the church um, has shown that you can work these things out and you mm-hmm. can come to a better understanding. Um, but I, look, I think it, it, it comes down to just when you read anything, right? as finite, limited creatures, our interpretation of any text is going to be open to disagreement and uh, open to new interpretations. I'm sort of more interested in why did we disagree and what can we learn from those disagreements? Mm. Well, why do we disagree? Yeah, loads of reasons. Um, the cynical answer is because of naked self-interest. Yeah. Right? So that's that's one of the easiest things to say. Well, the people in the south of the US, they wanted to keep their slaves and so they cherry-picked through the Old Testament to try to, I guess, make for the, the answer that they wanted economically. Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe's novel Uncle Tom's Cabin, there's a character in that in that story who basically expresses this kind of cynicism. He says, look, if the price of cotton went down, you'd all be reading your Bibles differently. Right. In other words, we're just driven purely by payoffs. And there's some truth to that. We do respond to um, payoffs. And as humans, we are finite, but we're also often self-interested and selfish. So yeah, we can we can make that we can twist texts to mean whatever they want. But actually what was interesting when we when kind of reading through some of the, the sermons and the, the pamphlets from this era, you've mentioned some of them, but I also read a ton of um, literature on, on both sides of that divide. Uh, what's interesting is that there was a deeper principle to their disagreement, which was about their assumptions or their um, presuppositions about what the Bible is. Right. and how we're meant to read the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, and typically, do we open the stories, the narratives of the Old Testament expecting to find heroes to be copied, like mm-hmm. Abraham? Or do we open the Bible and find the record of God dealing with imperfect, sinful humans and, I guess, reforming them and, and pointing them towards the right way to go? Because it, it becomes a very different book depending on how you, you read it. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, do we expect to find superheroes in the Bible or 
is there no superheroes in the Bible, just God? Um, and typically the people in the South um, would uh, look to, well, Abraham, he's got a slave, must be okay then. Mm. Whereas the people in the North were a bit more sophisticated. They go, well, hang on, Abraham also sort of hoard out his wife to Pharaoh. That's probably not something you want to go emulate, right? right? Or they pointed to all sorts of things that the patriarchs, these great and godly patriarchs had done and said, well, you know, maybe these stories are here not so much that we would copy them, but that we would see God working even through them. Mm. But is there a correct reading, though? Yes. So I mentioned before the payoffs, right? So one of the payoffs is consistency. Right, so if you're reading the Bible in a way that's inconsistent with, um, with itself, then I, I'm happy to say, well, that's a less good reading. So, for instance, one of the most interesting arguments against the slave owners in the South was, well, guys, you're pointing to the law of Moses to say, hey, slavery is fine. You really should put into practice then all the laws of Moses to do mm. with slavery. To which they said, well, that's just crazy because we can't have laws like uh, Moses says that, for instance, a runaway slave must be protected by a neighbouring village in Old Testament Israel. So if you run away from your master, your next door neighbour village has an obligation not to give you back, mm. but to protect you. Right? Well, that would be crazy. That would completely undermine the whole system. Right. right? Or the seven-year time limit on, on slavery. Right? That's another law Moses says. You can sell yourself if you go bankrupt. You can sell your labour but there's a seven-year term limit and they can't touch your body. All right? Well, that would be crazy. That wouldn't. The whole system. Uh, third law, you know, in, in just after the, um, in the covenant, uh, book of the covenant after the Ten Commandments, Moses says if you um, go into slavery, there are limits on it, severe limits, big asterisks on it. For instance, uh, you might sell yourself into slavery for bankruptcy, but you cannot um, kidnap someone and force them into slavery. For that, there's the death penalty. Now, you put those things together... And the people in the North quite rightly said, well, if you want to be consistent about this, then you're going to have a great deal of trouble running the transatlantic slave trade. Mm. For instance, you're all going to be dead mm. because of the death penalty um, and it's all going to fall apart in a few years. I think that's a more consistent reading of the covenant code because it, it actually puts into practice all the laws, not just cherry-picking. Mm. So I think I can say, well, the, the view that cherry-picks the Old Testament law to support slavery is a worse view than the view which is consistently reading the whole of it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it does. But, but how do I know I'm cherry-picking or actually getting the, the whole fruit, so to speak, if you were to, to extend, the, extend the metaphor, or, or actually getting the correct reading of, the, of what the Bible is actually saying? Part of the problem with finitude, in other words, part of the problem that we are limited humans, is that we can't make sure in advance that we're always going to get this stuff right. So uh, the answer is we have to be open to being wrong. Mm. And open to conversation with other people. So people forget that while the, the southern slave owners were sort of like waving their Bibles and pointing to you know, Abraham having slaves, um, the Pope was pretty sure that they were wrong. The rest of the English-speaking Christian world was pretty sure that they were wrong. Their northerner cousins were telling them they were wrong and they just weren't listening. Mm. So if you go into a, into a disagreement about the Bible with your ears closed, unable to accept other points of view, then, yeah, you'll probably you're going to end up with a less good view. But if you go in pretty confident that you've got it right, but open to being, I guess, held up short, you know, pulled up short by someone else or by the, by the text itself, then eventually you're going to come around. And, I mean, today there's pretty much no one in the world who, who takes that view um, that Moses is in favour of slavery and wants you to have some, right? So mm. there's we've, through conversation, through dialogue, through an openness to new experiences and being shown to be wrong, um, we actually can 
improve. Now, we're always going to be finite. We're always going to be limited. We're always going to be open to prejudice. But that's some of the things we can do to, to be working towards a better outcome and a better uh, reading of the Bible. But is this to say then that, that the Bible just isn't clear? Some things are unclear. Sometimes what to do with it is less clear. No, there's a bunch of reasons. So firstly, you, the Bible, even if it was once clear in some places, is no longer clear to us mm-hmm. because it was written a long time ago. Mm. That's not a, a fault. That's just history, right? So we, you know, it's very hard for us to imagine what it would be like to be living in a world before the job market. Uh, mm. It would be very hard for us to imagine what it would be like to be a subsistence farmer in a world of famine and um, pestilence. pestilence you know? So we actually need to be, you know, I like to say, we need to be good travellers when we go to a foreign land and a foreign time and ask questions. Not that it's unclear, it's, it's like travelling to another country. You've got to be prepared to spend the time mm. understanding local customs. You need a guidebook, so to speak. You need a guidebook. So one of the most frustrating things for us in this debate is that they use the same word, slave, to describe very different situations, mm. right? So on the one hand, you've got the kidnappy slave. You know, you've gone and kidnapped a village and sold them to slavery. That's the one Moses says is death penalty stuff. They use the word slave for that. But they also use the word slave for someone who goes bankrupt and needs to work for you in your family business to pay off their debt. Um, they hadn't invented the word intern yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, <laughs> they kind of use the same word. They right. just didn't yeah. s- distinguish. Right. Right now, for us, it's very hard for us to get inside that that worldview, that that situation. But it's not impossible. So when you say is the Bible unclear, I'd say, well, it's old, and we are limited, and it's complex, and it's well, life is complex, isn't it? Mm. And so, I, I wouldn't say it's unclear in the sense of it's sort of like it's a defect. I think that's just the fact of reading anything cross culturally. Mm. Mm. Um, I think you can do it. I, I'm very optimistic about that. But you have to go in with an openness to, okay, what would it be like? You know, I, I always say this, you've got to be a good traveller and there's nothing more tiresome. Remember the days when we could go to a foreign country? There's <laughs> um, nothing more tiresome than travelling with someone who you know, gets off the plane and the first thing they say is the food here smells funny, the people talk funny and they drive on the wrong side of the road. Yeah. You want someone who's got an openness to new experience and, look, I can't get you to another country right now but if you read the Bible, you're, you're travelling to a very foreign place. Mm. And, and yes, slavery is a good example where one of the, the key arguments that the people in the North made rightly was you don't understand what slavery was in the ancient world. To their, to their southerner friends who had slaves, like, you, you're justifying this, but it is completely different. Well, why don't we travel to this Let's foreign it, land, yeah. so to speak, and we have a look at slavery or some of the passages in the Bible which were contested. And we're going to look at the Old Testament book of Genesis, which you've mentioned before in Abraham, and the story of a slave woman, Hagar, in Genesis 16. Now, Genesis 16, 1 to 2 says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. So... This is the issue that we've just discussed in some sense. Here, Abram and his wife, Sarai, some of the great figures of the Bible, uh, they clearly own slaves and say, well, maybe help us unpack a bit how to interpret this because this seems to reinforce Richard Furman's comment that the right of holding slaves is clearly established in the Holy Scriptures, both by precept and example. So doesn't the Bible advocate owning people as property here? Yeah, so it all depends on, and it all did depend on in the sort of 19th century debates over, over this passage, what do you think this is? 
And what are you expecting to find? So if, like a lot of the um, preachers and politicians in the, in the, the South of the uh, US, if you expect to find in the Bible a bunch of examples to be copied, then yeah, sure. I mean, you should own slaves. You also probably should sleep with them, which is you know entirely Abraham does. He sleeps with his slave. Now, weirdly, sort of a lot of the southern southern slave owners would kind of balk at that idea, <laughs> right? Yeah. Right. At least their wives would. So they're a little inconsistent, perhaps, Completely, in the application yeah. Of, yeah. of the Old Testament precepts. Yeah, and so you know Abraham is also polygamous, but we you know we don't do that. Yeah. But if you yeah, if you open the scriptures expecting to find um, examples of moral superheroes. Then, then this, yeah, people did, and I've read their sermons and their, their kind of pamphlets, did selectively point to this example of Abraham owning slaves. So maybe just as a step there, in terms of actually, it means when we're reading the Bible, then you're looking for consistency, I suppose. That's one of the key tools or the ways to uh, sort of check to see how am I reading the Bible correctly. Consistency, but I'd also say you've got to check your own assumptions about genre. So is this a nursery rhyme or a fairy tale to be copied mm. right so is this a story that you tell your kids to say hey hey kids this is this is how life is meant to be done because actually we know a lot more about hebrew narrative now uh, there's been some amazing sort of comparative literature work done in, in this in this field the weird and interesting and beautiful thing about hebrew narrative is it's about as far from a fairy tale as you can get right um, they delight in describing characters through their actions, not through explicit moral judgments. So, I mean, one thing that the slave owners would say, well, there's no condemnation of Abraham here, which is true. There's no explicit condemnation. But very rarely is there any explicit condemnation in Hebrew narrative. What you have to look for is the way the shape of the narrative plays out, and that gives you a clue as to what God thinks about what's going on. Right. The other thing is they very, very rarely, I mean, it's, it's almost like the theology of the Hebrew Bible is expressed in the way that they take almost delight in showing the flaws of their heroes. And just think about it, you can't, you can't name a single Old Testament character who doesn't have recorded in this book an outstanding failure at some mm. point, mm. right? And we would think, well, surely you should get a PR team onto that and maybe sort of brush those, you know, airbrush those things out of the story. That's how we would do it if we were telling the story of our ancestors who we're very proud of. But the whole point about the Bible story is there are no heroes. And so we read these descriptions of human characters who are muddling along, making terrible mistakes. Abraham, you know, has, he makes lots of mistakes, you know, unambiguously so. He doesn't protect his wife and sort of whores her out to, to a foreign king, right? Mm. Now, that's not being recommended. No, okay? not at Just all. to be clear. There's <laughs> lots of things that aren't being... I mean, um, David uh, raping Bathsheba is not recommended. Murdering yes. Uriah is not recommended. Yes. Why do the, 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 the storytellers, the Jewish storytellers, include this stuff? And I, th- I think, at least I don't, didn't come up with this, but the people who study Hebrew narrative have pointed out that it comes from their theology, that humans are a wonderfully glorious mixed bag. Mm. And yet God works through not superheroes, but ordinary people. And the good news, Robert, f- for me and for you is if God can use Abraham, whose only sort of redeeming feature is he trusted God and God used him, yes. used him then he can use you too. Yeah, he can use Even us. me. Yeah. But see, that comes from understanding the genre. Mm. And if you read this book like a fairy tale, like a, a moral sort of morality play or something, then you're going to find some very startling results the longer you keep reading. 
Well, although atheist Matt Dillahunty uses passages like this, though, to attack the credibility and the morality of the Bible by asking, well, if you were God, would you ever include a passage which says it's okay to own people as property? Well, it, essentially what he's objecting to is how dare God reveal himself to these people in this time and this place? Because all the things in this, in the, 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 that we're objecting to here are just part of the setting of the story. Mm. Right? So um, Abraham taking a, a slave, Hagar, as a second wife and continuing Sarah's line, that is, that's part of the... the we, we've got records of that happening in other comparable ancient cultures. Right? So it's part of the setting. Mm. What we should be looking at is not the setting, but the destination. Mm. Not where you begin the journey, but where it's pointing you to. Mm. And when you look at that, it actually becomes quite remarkable to see what God is saying into that setting. I actually think it's the height of arrogance to say, no, well, God should have waited until we were woke enough that he could be, you know, accept, he would accept us to reveal himself to. But no, God's actually getting into the reality of life and pointing in, in those ancient cultures. In, those, in the ancient time. Yeah. And pointing them towards what is his will, I guess, here. Yeah. Right. And I guess he's, he begins a, a process of reformation here with some enormously important principles that he throws into these people's worlds. And they're the reason why we think slavery is wrong today, mm. right? Like just think about – so he outlaws the kidnappy type of slave. We're talking now not about this story but more about the Ten Commandments and, and so on. He outlaws the, 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 the kidnappy slavery. He makes a concession to reality when he says, oh, well, you can still sell yourself in terms of bankruptcy but – and there's a huge asterisk on this, right? But the, the fine print is – no one can own your body, right? If, if, you, if they knock out so much as a tooth, then you, go, you walk free. It can only be for a limited time and they don't own your soul in that you still get to go to the Sabbath festival. You still, no one can own you mm. because I own you. That's what God says. Now, that kind of takes down the entire point of slavery, right? Like the, mm. the, the dehumanising thing is not just the mistreatment or the, the physical abuse, it's the dehumanisation. Mm. So could you say then that whilst it's no explicit sort of six-point plan to outline why slavery is wrong, the seeds of its subversion are there within the scripture and the, the narrative as it, as it moves forward? I wouldn't just say the seeds. I think like, you know, a, a very solid kind of, kind of established tree, right? And now it takes a long time for humans to work out how to practically... I mean, they sort of had to invent LinkedIn, right? They had to invent... <laughs> Um, we, we had to invent the job market. We had to invent sort of stable contractual relations. We, we had to do a lot of work to, do, to, to kind mm. of put this into practice. But the principle and the way the dehumanising essence of slavery is just undercut in, in that moment. I mean, it's not the per- I mean, people think that the Old Testament is describing the perfect society. It's not. Right? This is the biggest misunderstanding, right? It's not describing the perfect society. It's describing how God is revealing his will into a very imperfect situation. And I'm glad he does that because it actually gives us some hope, right, that into the imperfect reality of our lives, God can retrieve some justice, can, can work towards something better. Now, the atheist, I think, has a point, right? God probably should have just given up on us all and wiped the slate clean and started planet Earth again, but this time put the dolphins in charge or something. And just sure, might, just yeah. kind of, but yeah. he doesn't. He works with real people mm. who have real social customs which are really twisted and weird just like ours. Mm. Right? We have the decency to hide away our economic slaves on the other side of the world, but they still exist. Mm. Right? It's the second biggest trade in the world today. Right? Second behind the drugs trade is the illegal um, human trafficking yeah. trade. Right? 
Now, we are not exempt from this. We haven't worked out how to do that yet, but God still persists with us mm. and is patient with us. Yeah. And I'm sort of glad. So you're saying that then, hence the idea that slavery is is wrong and against ultimately the will of God is clear through the trajectory of Scripture. Absolutely crystal clear. Right? The, if you mean the, the, the idea that you can own another person, you can mm. own another person's body, that you can dispose of it however you want, that they have no rights, that they are to be exploited. It's not just clearly there. It's actually part of the story. Remember, Abraham, let's go back to Abraham. His descendants ended up in Egypt as foreigners who then became slaves. And God's great act, which sort of started the entire nation of Israel, was to break a bunch of slaves out of slavery in Egypt. And he refers back to that event constantly. He says, hey, remember how you guys were slaves? Mm. Remember how you were oppressed foreigners in a foreign land? Don't you dare treat other people that way Mm. because I will hear them as well. So it's not just like a sideline even to the story. It's actually core to the story is this is the God who breaks slaves out of prison. And we see that throughout the Old Testament. We see that into the New Testament. And we, um, I mean, we rejoice. (laughs) That's, That's who God is. He's the God who looks to the vulnerable and he demands that the oppressed be released. Mm. So then you've just mentioned the New Testament there. So how does that sort of complete the story, so to speak, or how does that uh, help fill out the, the story and, and, and the way we interpret the scriptures? Pay less attention to the setting, see what Moses is saying and what the writers of the scripture are saying. They're pointing us towards principles like that you can't own another person, um, even if they haven't worked out what to call that. When you get to the New Testament, Jesus, when he turns up at the synagogue, he's handed the scroll of Isaiah, and he says, basically, those principles are here. I'm here, right? He, he announces freedom for the oppressed mm. uh, is here. So Jesus becomes an interpretive key perhaps as well or a tool to understand what the rest of the scriptures are saying. But not just a key. I think he accomplishes it, right? So he, he, he kind of sets people free from oppression he, um, in his own ministry, but also in, in the work that he's sort of begun. Um, he tells people, even if you technically are still a slave, you don't belong to anyone because you belong to me. Mm. So you've done a lot of reflection and thinking about different interpretations of the scriptures, Andy. So can you still believe the Bible, even though there's lots of disagreement about it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because disagreement is part of being human. And God has chosen to reveal himself to us as, well, we are humans. (laughs) So I guess reading the Bible is that we're going to we're going to have to disagree. But disagreement is not a bad thing, right? Because it depends how you disagree, right? If I'm open to being wrong mm. in this disagreement, if I'm open to listen to other people, then we might all just learn something. So, Andy, why would we believe the Bible if we can't agree on what it means? Because it's true and because we need to understand what it means. And by disagreeing, we actually come closer to understanding what God wants from us. Well, let me leave you with something our conversation perhaps has illuminated uh, as a part of the Bible which people have disagreed about from Genesis 16.1. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Thanks very much to our guest today, Andy Judd. Thank you so much for having me. Enjoy Bigger Questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.